0: I founded the b Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. Understanding how your body responds to stress can be the key to managing stressful situations and reducing the impact it has on your health. But are we coping with stress? Stress seems to be one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. 74% of UK adults have felt so stressed at some point over the last year that they felt overwhelmed or unable to cope. And this stat was taken pre the pandemic. And stress and depression has accounted for 57% of all sick days in 2017 and 2018. So stress is a significant factor for our mental health, but it's also linked to our physical health problems, such as heart disease, Problems with our immune system, insomnia, and digestive problems. But what if I told you that you could stress-proof yourself? In this week's episode, I speak to Dr. Mitu Steroni, a neuroscientist who has written a fascinating book aimed to stress-proof our daily lives. Welcome to the
1: podcast, Mitsu. How are you? Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm very well. We um, enjoying gorgeous weather. So it's it's there's always a you know positive side to having to stay at home and all of that. So yeah, I'm very well and so happy to be here.
0: Oh, I'm really pleased to have you. And you're not you're in Luxembourg actually, aren't you? You're not in London at the moment.
1: Not at the moment. Yes, I'm in Luxembourg at the moment. Yes.
0: And for all my listeners, because when I was reading your biography, um, and I did ask you to send me a little biography over, which I thought was way too brief to introduce you, um, because you have done so much research um, into the area regarding stress, but you're also a trained medical doctor. And you're certified in ophthalmology, which means that you specialize in the eye and visions as well as neuro-ophthalmology. Would you be able to explain to everyone who's listening what that is and also how your journey evolved from this researching into stress?
1: Yes, thank you. So I am a trained doctor. So my journey into stress really took three parts. So the first part is from my own perspective so my journey as a doctor, the stress of being a junior doctor, of doing mm-hmm. my exams—I I consider myself a very stress-prone person. Mm-hmm. My perceived stress tends to be much higher than many people around me. So I was very aware of experiencing stress, and during my own my own career. I felt manifestations of stress myself. So for instance, I had a, a very mild uh, stress-related condition which appeared. And the second phase of my career involved research. So I have a PhD in neuro And during that research, I was studying the very fine movements of the pupil's in the eye now you might think it's a very niche it is a niche niche area mm-hmm. but actually it offers an extraordinary wealth of information about the autonomic nervous system so it's the kind of the 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 nerves that the nerve network inside us that has that is responsible for coordinating the fight or flight or rest and digest reactions and in addition to many many other other responses such as the rate of breathing the pace of breathing the heart rate and so on. So this nerve network, which is so hidden inside us, actually peeks out to the outside world through the pupils in the eyes. And I had the extraordinary opportunity to study this during part of my um, my PhD research. And while doing this, I was also trying to do things, interventions, to calm my own stress down. For instance, I took up hot yoga um, because a studio had opened up right opposite uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital in London at the time. Mm -hmm. And doing that hot yoga seemed to really calm me down and it helped this autoimmune condition that i had and miraculously it also changed the parameters of my pupil responses so that was i'd say the main trigger for my of for my curiosity to learn more about stress and then this was my own perspective but of course from the other side of the coin any doctor will tell you especially doctors or any other healthcare workers Or patients who have exposure to who have experience of autoimmune conditions or inflammatory diseases, any conditions which are chronic and involve inflammation of one or other kind, they will often report exacerbations with stress. But of course, when you are going to a clinic or going to seek medical help, because stress has been so notoriously difficult to define and measure, it was always a sort of a postscript. Mm. And this is also something that was always in the back of my mind during my medical training and, and professional life. And then of course, when I experienced stress myself, the two kind of came together. And that's really my journey of of my interest in stress. That's fascinating.
0: And it's really interesting that it came about from your own personal experience, actually. And actually, you don't realise how your eyes can show you so much what's going on in your body. And I never, I never always never want to speak about myself on podcasts, especially, but what you just said there is something very similar that happened to me. And I've never told anyone I've had an autoimmune condition, but I I do suffer with a a few autoimmune conditions actually. And it was all found out through um, my pupils. So I was having clumps of tissue in my eyes and I was referred to Moorfields Eye Hospital. And that's um, that's how it started. And I found that fascinating that that was one of the triggers that led to them discovering different autoimmune conditions that was going on in my
1: body. How extraordinary. Yes, mm. yes, that's right. And it is, I'd, I'd say that it is the most interesting part of my career, of my entire career to have worked in, I was probably, we're not going to discuss this, of course, but I was probably mm. at the clinic that you visited. But um, that was the most, you know, most uh, intriguing clinic. And the cases were so intriguing, because you wouldn't, as you just said, you wouldn't put these two parts together Never. <laughs> And and just as another side story, just a couple of weeks ago, um, another team, I forget where, a group of researchers, again, researching the pupillary responses in PTSD sufferers, have found how PTSD actually manifests through the pupillary responses. This is something that shouldn't be news to people who, who are familiar with the pupil, but for you know for, for people who are not aware, mm. your because the way your pupils respond to situations, to you know, to things that grab your attention and to things that excite you, both happy or sad, the speed at which they react, how large they become and how small they become all of that gives you information about the kind of the underlying excitability of this of your nerve network, of this autonomic nervous system, And this study has confirmed, well, it's found that people with PTSD, some people with PTSD, seem to have an exaggerated uh, kind of an excitability to images which, is, which you can see by looking at the pupils of the eyes.: Wow.
0: And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know a PTSD, that's just post-traumatic stress syndrome. But that is, that's fascinating. There's this whole kind of thing that nobody really talks, I don't really read very many research papers about this, I guess because it's not in my area of at all. But this is absolutely fascinating to hear.
1: It is. I mean, I think that, you know, the the, the eyes are actually, the well, the eyes are an extension of your brain. We don't think about it that way, but they really are. So the eyes are, in fact, the only part of your body through which you can directly visualize the brain. So if you look through your pupils into the back of the eye, you actually look into a kind of an extension of the brain, which is the optic nerve. So it is a very underappreciated niche, um, you know, part of our body. Mm. Fantastic. I mean, so you, through your
0: journey and through your career and finding hot yoga as well, and you managed to cap your stress, I would say, and, and start working out little tips and tricks to reduce your stress. But what is a stress response? And I mean, the ultimate question is,
1: why? why do you think we get stressed? So a stress response is a very normal healthy mechanism that we have and having it has allowed us to be alive today. Without a stress response, we would all be dead.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Primarily, the way to see it is, if you imagine your brain as a sort of prediction machine, so your brain is this sealed off black box Which has these little extensions or little uh, windows into the world. So some window, which are your sense organs. So your eyes are windows, your ears are windows, your skin is a window, and your brain looks at the world through these windows and then puts an image of the world together, which you, which is your experience. Okay, so it blends. It takes all these bits of information and it. the the higher parts of your brain creates a story out of it and that's how you perceive everything around you. Mm -hmm. Now, because of this, of the way in which the brain is very predictive, it needs to predict things because it needs to survive any potential danger. It's essentially, it needs to reduce uncertainty to protect itself from danger. Mm -hmm. A stress response is the default setting for protecting yourself from as many permutations and combinations of danger that might be possible. So this is why a stress response begins in your brain but extends to pretty much every single organ system across your body. And it prepares you for dangers which can range from you know small things to big things from temperature to physical to other to, sorry from temperature to emotions from physical physical trauma to you know other trauma so it's essentially a protective response that your brain your brain pushes a button and you immediately raise your defenses and in terms in physiologically what happens is the, the stress response, the seat of the stress response is a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is sort of very deep inside your brain. And there's one region of the hypothalamus which, is, which sets off a chain reaction. And this area of the brain actually coordinates two two chains we can call it or t- two sets of reactions two avalanches mm-hmm. so one set of reaction is your nerve reaction your neural reaction your autonomic nervous system reaction to the stress response to the to the stressful situation the other reaction of the other chain is your hormonal response to the mm-hmm. situation so this one seat at the top with this one button at the top gets pushed and you have your autonomic nervous system respond, so your, your nerve, your neural response. And this involves your sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the nerve network that's responsible for the fight or flight uh, response, which your listeners will have heard about. Mm-hmm. That gets set off. That has many, many effects, including raising your heart rate, raising your blood pressure and so on making you breathe faster. And that also has a conversation with, because none of these are isolated, it also has a conversation with this second avalanche of responses that is set off, which is your hormonal response. Your listeners will have heard of cortisol, will have heard of noradrenaline and adrenaline. So these are all part of the hormonal responses. So as soon as you meet a stressful situation, which is essentially a situation that may pose a threat. Your brain is assuming it is dangerous, even when it is not, just so it can be completely prepared for any kind of threat. So when you have a stress response, as I describe in my book, you have several processes. So these two pathways result in at least seven processes being triggered. So d- would you like me to quickly run through them? Yes, please run through the seven processes. The seven processes. So th- these are seven among others, but these are seven which I've gone into quite a bit of length in my book because there are things that you can identify immediately. So the first one I've, I've talked about is, for instance, which most people will be aware of is in an acute, acutely stressful re- uh, situation, you're perception of the world becomes a little bit skewed. So you become much more vigilant. You become much more reactive and far less rational at that moment. So you don't go into complex thought, complex thinking. So one analogy is if you're a soldier in the middle of a battleground and you are Trying to predict the enemy, you know, hiding, lurking behind trees or behind buildings or whatever, and you're trying to keep your reaction very very, at a very, very low threshold so you can move and jump away with the slightest warning. At that moment, you are reacting to that situation. You don't want to sit down. And think about a game of chess mm. or think about playing a game of chess because that could kill you. So at that moment, your brain kind of switches into this reactive, emotionally alert, highly vigilant mode of, opera- of operation. Then the second thing that happens, again, these are all connected, is you have a whole cocktail of, of hormones that reset or that readjust different parts of your of your physiology so some of the more uh, the best known ones are cortisol mm-hmm. for instance and norepinephrine mm-hmm. or norepinephrine
2: mm-hmm. There are
1: stress hormones. These are known as stress hormones, but Mm -hmm. each of these has a role. So, for instance, cortisol has a very interesting. So, it's released in acute stress, but it's released with a slight time lag. So, you first have your autonomic. Your first have your nerve response, your autonomic nervous system reaction, which is, which kind of runs on electricity. That's one way of thinking about it, and that's why it's faster. And then you have your hormonal response your cortisol is released slightly later. And the cortisol release in an acutely stressful situation actually has many beneficial effects. So cortisol in short, sharp bouts actually acts as an anti-inflammatory. So, you know, people with asthma will be aware that, so we all get um, inhalers, especially during the hay fever season. So asthma inhalers, for instance, are based on steroids. So corticosteroids in short, sharp bouts act as an anti-inflammatory. I mean, another parallel to this is we, during this, this terrible pandemic, um, there's been a great um, clinical trial in the UK which has shown that dexamethasone, a steroid, can help people with very severe illness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it is a steroid and it helps by, re- by reducing, by kind of calming the inflammation. Mm -hmm. And when we get stressed in an acute setting, that's what the cortisol release does. It calms inflammation. The opposite to what I actually think cortisol does. Right. Because what I'm describing right now is acute stress, is the short, sharp, immediate stress reaction. Mm -hmm. But it's very
0: different in chronic stress, I guess, and prolonged stress. Correct. So
1: every single one of these processes, the emotion that the, the way we change to becoming reactive rather than reflective. The cortisol and other hormonal release, then the other things, for instance, the way in which we become, our motivation increases, our clocks become our, our body clocks become slightly more prone to realignment. Um, all of these things, the 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 way synaptic plasticity, which I can go into a little bit later. Yes, um, just so, changes, so our
0: listeners understand what that means, synaptic yes, plasticity. The
1: way, the way kind of our brain connections change or our brain connection, the dynamic of our brain connections change during stress. All of these, these seven and more processes happen in acute stress in a way that actually helps us. But if you keep the button pressed continuously, their effects change. So for instance, with cortisol, which is an anti-inflammatory in short, sharp doses, if you keep the button pressed and you keep giving lots and lots of cortisol indefinitely, it's its effect completely changes. And if you keep the button pressed and you experience more stress, you actually end up having more inflammation. So the Mm. cortisol, excessive cortisol actually, through a very interesting uh, pathway, increases inflammation. Mm. So the effects of little bouts of stress are good and they help us. But if you keep the stress button turned on continuously, The positive effects suddenly change and become negative. Just because a little bit is good does not mean more is better. Mm -hmm. More becomes very different to the effect of a little.
0: That feels like the philosophy of life. <laughs> a little it, bit is good, too much is not. It's the same with everything, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is its is completely the same with everything. And I think with stress, it's really interesting because actually the same thing has a completely different effect when given in large doses.
0: Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I talk about that regarding nutrition as well. I think in, in, and you look at stress and it's it's exactly the same thing. And I think We're now starting to understand, and doctors now are more starting to understand, you know, why stress is so impactful on somebody and how that can lead to a weakened immune system, you know, digestive problems. I know you speak about a lot of this in your book, kind of the plethora of illnesses that can occur from stress. And I think so many times we try to look at other reasons of why we might be, um, you know, ill, and not many of us actually look at our stress levels. And how can we analyze our stress levels? Like, how can we see if we are stressed or not? Because if you, I think I um, read this maybe in your book, but if you Google an image and you, you look at kind of the obvious person that's meant to be stressed, do you look at steam coming at their arrears, or you see that they're really, you know, pent up. But is that what stress manifests itself as? Like, how can we look at ourselves and wonder if we are stressed and if that's leading to
1: illnesses this is a this is something that i found very interesting because i always assumed that stress is all about appearance Mm -hmm. (laughs) so if someone doesn't look stressed they are not stressed and really if you go into the research this is not the case at all um there's there's several the seven processes that i describe and the many because each one feeds into other processes all of these things result in stress affecting every single part well every single organ system in your body Mm. so for instance bungee jumpers bungee jumping is a very stressful experience i don't know if you've tried it i've done one
0: and i think i know what (laughs) you're about to say because i read this i read this i think you're talking about insulin resistance i read this and immediately thought Oh my goodness, this has obviously happened to me because I <laughs> bungee jumped and skydived, and I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie at the same time. So,
1: so now, and I must uh, point out that this does depend quite a lot on the individual. So, mm-hmm. if you, if so, people who, who a study has shown that after a bungee jump, you, if you measure, um, if you, you know, do a quick blood test and you check people's insulin levels, actually, insulin resistance. There's a small period of insulin resistance. People become insulin resistant immediately after a bungee jump. Mm-hmm. And just and, so to let
0: people to know insulin resistance means when your body doesn't respond properly to the hormone insulin. So that's what can lead on to type 2 diabetes, just in case people don't know what
1: insulin resistance means. Another great parallel which I describe in the book, in my book, is that if you take um, if you take a, a kind of a reasonably small happy mouse mm. and you put the mouse into a cage with an angry hostile bully mouse, being simply being in that cage and dealing with that social stress which we can all uh, relate to, you know, co-workers in the office or a bad boss and so on mm. simply put, being put into that situation makes the mouse insulin resistant Wow. So this is how psychological stress or the stress that we think is all in our mind and is triggered by our emotions has physical manifestations. And Mm. insulin resistance is, of course, something you can't see from the outside. No. So, so one possible consequence of stress, because of course it's not just one episode of stress that does this; it's chronic stress over years and years. So, one hypothesis, which is difficult to prove, but there are lots of correlations that is that that are evident in the in global data, is that chronic stress correlates with a, the global rise in. Insulin resistance, which you just described, mm-hmm. and also the metabolic syndrome, which which is which is a kind of a, a, a syndrome, a whole collection of of conditions, which include pre-diabetes or mm-hmm. insulin resistance, which also include having belly fat, so visceral fat, so a lot of fat around the middle, mm-hmm. and can also include hypertension, having a high blood pressure. So all of these things often happen together. That's yeah. often called, I, I'm, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but that's called, referred to as the metabolic syndrome. Mm-hmm. And there is there are correlations of a rise in chronic stress with metabolic syndrome. Yes. Yes. So, you know, in answer coming back to your question, if you see someone with looking having a very calm, peaceful face, but suddenly developing metabolic syndrome after years of either very very you know mentally stressful work or work working night shifts or working in a way that's that 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 is stressful, but that doesn't show in the person's face mm-hmm. can eventually go on to manifest in the person's physiology so in, term, in in you know in in theory this someone can go through years of chronic stress and if this hypothesis is true then develop metabolic syndrome and that is how the stress manifests it does not manifest in the face or in you know in smoke coming out of the ear, out of the ears mm. It becomes visible through insulin resistance, maybe. Mm.
0: Well, Or many other problems as well. That could be one of many problems that it manifests in, I guess. Um, and I think that's just really important for anyone that's listening who just thinks, well, you know, maybe I'm not running around with smoke coming out of my ears, but that might not necessarily mean they're not suffering from stress. And I think you mentioned that study earlier, but from that study with the mice, I think as you spoke about this in your TED Talk, which I watched and I found fascinating, you spoke about the mice's brain actually shrinking from being in a very stressful situation. So can stress cause our brains to shrink? And does that have long-term impact if it does?
1: So this was a question That has been uh, investigated thoroughly in animals for years, before the first human study, which was carried out, uh, I think, in January, published in January 2017, and Mm -hmm. by the Karolinska, by a team at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And this team, for the first time, showed. So, so in answer to your question, if you put animals through chronic stress most frequently mice, because they've been most studied, Mm. we see structural changes in the brain that Mm. correlate with the behavioral changes of stress. Mm -hmm. So these structural changes primarily affect two areas of the brain. One area which some of your, reader, your listeners may be familiar with is called the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. It's an area of the brain that is very active with memory and learning, actually also amongst other processes. Um, but this hippocampus region of, of, of the brain has been extensively studied. Mice, we're not sure yet if this also happens in humans. There is a 50-50 at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but in mice, new brain cells actually grow in the hippocampus, even when mice are adults. And this growth of new neurons in the hippocampus is hampered by chronic stress. Mm. And the hippocampal region in mice actually shrinks with chronic stress. Now, in humans, we don't, so far there is no conclusive evidence that humans produce new brain cells in the hippocampus. But this study in from Sweden, from the Karolinska Institute, showed something very interesting. The team took a bunch of people with chronic stress, burnout, work-related sort of exhaustion stress, and they took MRI scans of their brains. They then compared that with, Standard MRI MRI uh, scans of of healthy individuals without burnout, and they found that these individuals who were chronically stressed had thinning in very in very kind of not just focal areas; they were diffuse areas. But you could still select the regions, so you could pinpoint the regions where this thinning happened. But they had thinning in several parts of the brain. Now you might wonder, and of course the researchers wondered, well, these these individuals just happen to have thinner brains to begin with. There's no evidence that this is caused by the stress. Mm. So what they did was they then put these people, the researchers put these volunteers, put these uh, stressed individuals through three months of cognitive behavioral therapy and breathing exercises and other sort of stress management techniques. And three months later, they scanned the brains of these people again. And there was reversal in thinning in certain parts of the brain. Wow. Now, this study was the first of its kind, and it had a few limitations. For instance, they didn't see, they didn't scan stressed patients who did not go through the same uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and stress management uh, advice and and therapy, but it definitely confirms or it it reflects very well, it corroborated the results from previous animal studies, which showed shrinkage in the hippocampus. So that was the first time that there was a longitudinal study, which means you take a bunch of people who are stressed, you give them three months of a stress-free life, help them with therapy, etc., No drugs, no medications. This is all just stress management without medications. And following those three months of stress management, you scan their brains again and you see visible changes. So the next question is, of course, what is actually going on? So one way of looking at it, so we don't know for sure, but what we we think might be going on is... In the brain, you have certain parts of the brain. Uh, in the human brain, one part of the brain is that I'm referring to is the prefrontal cortex. It's a part of the brain that's just behind your forehead, and it kind of acts as the CEO of your whole brain or the conductor of the orchestra of your brain. Mm-hmm. It is responsible for attention, for focus, for concentration, for many aspects of decision making. So really for the higher thought processes for the more complex thinking that your brain uh, takes part in and this part of the brain this prefrontal cortex is very has got very rich connections between neurons between the brain cells and these connections between the brain cells have to be very very active because this region of the brain is also responsible for your working memory
2: mm-hmm.
1: I mentioned another part of the brain, in the mouse brain, called the hippocampus. We also, humans also have the same region, the hippocampus, which is also responsible for learning and memory. We learn all the time. We store things in our memory all the time. Mm. And during this, this storage and constant learning, there is a buzz of activity, which involves making new connections, solidifying existing connections, and when we sleep, removing old connections. So this kind of there's a buzz of activity which which center around connections between all the brain cells, which store the data that we are constantly acquiring. Mm. And these are two regions of the brain that are especially busy and especially um, dependent on synaptic activity. On these connections between brain cells to be very, very actively monitored, and and just very active in general. Mm-hmm. Chronic stress, we know from animal studies, hampers synaptic plasticity. So there is a chemical, there is a kind of a growth growth chemical in the brain. There are many growth chemicals in the brain, but one of these is called brain derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. Mm-hmm. And BDNF helps new connections grow. So it it increases synaptic plasticity. Would you better
0: just explain what that means in case you yes. don't know what that term is?
1: Yes. So when so one way of looking at the brain is it is a network of little individual brain cells which are all talking to each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. One brain cell will talk to lots of other brain cells mm-hmm. at the same time. Some, so so if you imagine each brain cell like a tree, Mm -hmm. okay, and the tree extends branches and it talks to its neighboring brain cells through these branches. So one branch connects to its friend on the left, another branch connects to its friend on the right, another branch, you know, this is how uh, uh, the friend on the, you know, in front of of you, imagine if you are a brain cell, your friend in front of you is connecting to you, through its own branch, Mm -hmm. which is right in front. So you have branches, but so each brain cell communicates with other brain cells by sending out these little branches. Mm -hmm. And the part where the branch meets the brain cell is called a synapse. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, when you have a lot of brain activity. So if you're storing lots of data, lots of memory, these connections between brain cells change and they change shape and they change structure. Mm. Old information, when old information is, you know, removed from your hard disk, your your hard disk structure itself changes. Okay, so if you have, you know, two brain cells communicating through their branches and they're holding on to a particular piece of data. And then tomorrow, the second uh, brain cell gets a new piece of information. Now it forms a new connection with another friend to its right. Those new connections are synapses. And as connections form and regress and change shape, we call that term, that whole process is called plasticity, synaptic plasticity. Mm-hmm. And this sort of change in the way brain cells communicate with each other is really the result of synaptic plasticity, the ease with which brain cells change connections and form connections with each other.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this Connection forming synaptic plasticity is essential because it is what allows new information to be processed by the brain. And I talked about this uh, growth chemical called BDNF. So BDNF actually increases these connections between brain cells. Mm -hmm. It increases the likelihood of these connections forming in mice. BDNF increases the birth of baby new brain cells. So essentially BDNF puts the brain in a state of active growth, um, just of enhanced activity. Mm -hmm. Chronic stress through various pathways lowers levels of BDNF in these two areas, the hippocampus and the prefrontal cortex, especially the hippocampus not diffusely throughout the entire organ, but, you know, specific regions which are relevant. And by lowering BDNF, when BDNF is reduced, among other things, this richness of new connections forming between brain cells is hampered. Mm. It becomes, it, it, it slows down. Mm. And the same happens with new brain cells being born in animals, in, in mice, in the mouse brain. And so one way in which we could explain this this process of finding thinning in parts of the brain, of the human brain, is it's possible that with chronic stress, this rich process of connection forming becomes hampered and that results in thinning. Wow.
0: But it can be reversed through that study that showed breathing in CBT,
1: which is fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. I think that is the most, probably the, the most important take-home message was exactly as you say, that three months of respite from the state of chronic stress, work-related chronic stress, really f- visibly changed the the thinnings. It reversed the thinning. Um, now, in the... In, just three months, um, not the entire thinning throughout the brain wasn't reversed. Some of the thinning was reversed. But of course, the scans would have to be repeated over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. But you're right, doing this, taking care of stress, Mm -hmm. reversed thinning, at least in some parts of the brain.
0: That's fantastic. And I really want to come on to that. actually kind of your tips, I I guess there's quite a few and they're all written in your book, but I'd love to some of my listeners to hear about how they can help reduce stress. Because I know, as many who are probably listening to this, when I'm really stressed, I can't concentrate. I'm really bad at making decisions. I get very easily overwhelmed. Um, and I think to, and when you're in that fight or flight state, it is very hard to calm yourself down or to think in a rational way. What, and I think also that really does impact anxiety um, and a lot of mental health problems. What would be your advice for the listeners of how can they use everyday tips and tricks to help reduce their stress?
1: So the way to look at it is you... When we are in a state of continued chronic stress, Mm -hmm. and a great example is, of course, what many of us went through during the lockdown. Um, When we are stuck at home, there is uncertainty outside. We don't know, you know, especially during the earlier months. We didn't know what was happening. We didn't know for how long it would happen. There is absolute abundant uncertainty. Mm -hmm. At that point, almost well, many of us were in a state of constant chronic stress. Now, when you are in a state of chronic stress, um, one of the mechanisms that the brain enforces that the brain um, you know pushes the button on is the state of very high reactivity, of emotional reactivity. And that can actually be correlated to your autonomic nervous system, this nerve network, that's responsible for fight or flight, etc. This autonomic nervous system, which has, you know, it's like a seesaw. Mm -hmm. It has the one arm that is responsible, as I said, for your fight or flight kind of feeling very wired uh, response. And the other arm, in the setting of stress specifically, it calms you down. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when we are in a state of chronic stress, that seesaw is tilted. So the fight or flight arm, you can see it almost as two buttons. You have to push both buttons equally. But in a state of chronic stress, you're pushing the button for raising your heart rate, feeling vigilant, feeling anxious, being emotionally alert. That button is pressed firmer and harder and longer. And the button that retracts from that, that makes you feel relaxed, is pushed less. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's your state of chronic stress. So when you are in that state, there are certain things that we that that we are now finding can be can be helpful in tilting the seesaw back. So as a general uh, as a general rule, state stress is a state of the brain. It's not just, you know, one single process that goes wrong. So when you're in a state of chronic stress, while this seesaw is tipped right at the top of the avalanche, the avalanche itself is affecting every single part of your body. And so you need to address the entire baseline for you to tilt the seesaw back. So in my book, I talk about seven ways, seven kind of approaches to doing this. So some simple ways, for instance, which go through these seven processes is looking at exercise. Mm -hmm. So we know, for instance, that exercise, similar to what we talked about earlier, it's dose matters. So low intensity, low to moderate intensity, aerobic exercise Mm -hmm. lowers levels of cortisol if they are high. So 30 minutes of, depending on your fitness level, of gentle uh, jogging or vigorous walking has been shown to lower levels of cortisol if the baseline cortisol level is high. So low-intensity exercise, moving every single day is one of possibly the most important things you could do to keep your seesaw flat. Mm -hmm. Second, I'd I'd say that... um, looking at the way stress manifests itself, look at your biological rhythm, look at your circadian rhythm. We talk about circadian rhythm. By that, I mean your natural body clock. Yes. Okay, so, what, so your, your, your brain has a master clock, but essentially every organ in your body has a little clock. And your entire body works like a factory. It clocks in, clocks out, according to, well, According to the time of day. Now, if you are someone who works night shifts, for instance, and every other part of your lifestyle is perfect, you will experience negative effects of that night shift as chronic stress. Mm-hmm. So addressing your biological rhythm can be very, very helpful in sh- in flattening that seesaw again. So, for instance, when you wake up in the morning, getting daylight, the amount of daylight you get in the day influences how much melatonin you produce at night when you go to bed. Melatonin is a hormone that's released by a gland in your brain called the pineal gland at night. It's called the darkness hormone. And melatonin is nature's natural anxiolytic. It calms anxiety. Mm -hmm. We all produce melatonin at at night when it is dark. But if you are sleeping late, if you're looking at computer screens late into the night with a lot of blue light, if you're eating late, if you're exercising late, all of these things hamper melatonin production at night. And the melatonin production at night tunes your body's body clock your body's biological clock Mm -hmm. so this after exercise the second thing i'd recommend is being very very strict regular waking regular sleeping be very strict with meal timing so i go into this extensively in my book but having your meal earlier on in the day is very important so your body's clock is influenced by heat movement meal time and light so doing, so using these four things to keep your body clock tuned, so waking up and having, for instance, a hot shower or hot mm-hmm. bath, eating, moving, exercising, and getting daylight. Mm-hmm. Very important, and simply the and, and and similarly a complete reversal of these four things later in the evening. So that's another strategy: address your biological clock. And the third thing is, of course, um, what you're eating. Watch what you're eating. What you're eating can also influence your mood and can affect your stress levels. Mm-hmm. I I describe also in my book um, the condition IBS, which uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with. IBS is known as. I
0: definitely wanted to talk to you about the gut health link with stress, but irritable bowel syndrome.
1: Yes, that's right. That's right. So IBS is, again, it was always a diagnosis of exclusion, which you'll be familiar with um, Mm -hmm. with your background in nutrition so we, we always kind of, IBS was a label or was a diagnosis that we only arrived at when we could, you know, discard every other possible diagnosis. And IBS is really a kind of a, an all-encompassing banner under which you get any kind of gut dysfunction mm-hmm. that cannot be explained in any other way.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So for a long time, IBS was just this very vague group of symptoms. It can include anything from heartburn to you know things affecting the lower bowel, abdominal pain, constipation, diarrhea, irregular mm-hmm. bowel movements, all of these things, just general abdominal pain, even all of these things can exist under the banner of irritable bowel syndrome. And irritable bowel syndrome is... There is mounting evidence that it has a very strong link with stress. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I, as I describe in my book, when when there are studies that show that when um, trainee when 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 soldiers go on deployment, there is a rise in IBS symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, IBS is also correlated with you know exam stress. I- a very large number of the population has it. Mm-hmm. It's particularly frequent in, particularly and prevalent in high-stress jobs. So something like sixty percent of medical students, um, in mm. certain countries, have been diagnosed wow. with it. So it's a very very common disorder. Yes, but it really is is a is a classic example of how mental stress manifests could manifest through nothing else but simply a problem with your digestion. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. And could you explain a little bit why that might be for our listeners? Because I know when I see patients that have IBS, I do talk to them a lot about breathwork and meditation and the brain and the gut connection and their stress levels. And there is now a lot of scientific research that looks at meditation and breath work with reducing the symptoms of IBS. But would you be able to go into a little bit more detail of why you believe stress to have such a big impact on our digestive systems?
1: Yes. So I'm going to go go about it the the, the way you, you just introduced it. So I'm going to start with breathing. Mm-hmm. So breathing is, for me, I, I find it one of the most fascinating aspects of stress management. And it's fascinating because we are, well, not not I personally, but researchers are now pinpointing the areas of the brain that explain why breathing exercises have such a potent stress calming effect. Mm. So there is a part of the brain that's responsible for the rhythm that that generates your breathing rhythm okay mm-hmm. and this part of the brain is in very close contact with a tiny little area in the brain it's actually colored blue it's called the locus ceruleus and this part this blue dot in your brain is the seat is kind of the highest throne of your sympathetic nervous system which is responsible for the for your you know your heart rate rising for your palms getting sweaty for your mm. breathing rate uh, increasing the kind of the fight or flight reaction so when you are lowering so this has really been demonstrated first in animals when you lower the rhythm of your breathing, so you you breathe slower and deeper, you are changing the the your pacing. you're you're changing the frequency at which this breathing region of your brain is active. So you're changing the rhythm of its activity. And it actually talks to this blue dot which is at the throne of your sympathetic nerve response. And by talking to this blue dot, it also changes the way the blue dot is acting. So it changes the activity of your sympathetic nervous system. And what is very interesting is breathing. This is the, what I've described as the pathway in the brain. Your autonomic nervous system feeds, well, it connects richly to your gut. Mm. Okay, so your stomach, your intestines are richly innervated by the same nerve network that lies behind the stress response. And this is why, you know, we all know if you have a I know from school when I had a very tough exam coming up, I had terrible cramps. Mm. Okay? So this whole kind of gut reaction that we talk about, um, butterflies, all of these things, mm. there is a reason for it, and that's because the autonomic nervous system is richly um, connected to your entire the entire length of the digestive tract. Um, one particular pathway from the brain to the gut, Is becoming is is being increasingly researched, and is becoming more and more kind of salient. We're learning more and more about it, and this pathway involves a nerve called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve, yes, the vagus nerve is part of the parasympathetic pathway, Mm -hmm. which, in the context of stress, opposes the fight or flight reflex. So the vagus vagal activity which is part of the parasympathetic activity, It, when your heart rate rises, it calms your heart rate down. Mm. So in terms of the seesaw, it tilts the seesaw the other way. And this vagus nerve is richly connected to your, to your uh, digestive tract. So coming back to your question about IBS, we think that there are many many parts to the jigsaw. So one very interesting uh, piece of this this puzzle is really very visible in athletes. So if you speak to marathon runners or very high ultra endurance uh, athletes, one of the most common complaints is of having stomach cramps and digestive Mm -hmm. issues when training very, very intensely. Now, what we know is that intense training tips the seesaw of this autonomic autonomic nervous system. It tips the seesaw in favor of sympathetic activity. So of this wired fight or flight state of being. And when you tip the seesaw in this way, your vagus nerve input Mm -hmm. into your intestines, into your gut, actually gets withdrawn It
2: lessens.
1: Seems to some way or other communicate with the microbes, with the bacteria sitting in your gut. And the bacteria in in the gut, of course, they're not just bacteria, there are also viruses in the gut. Mm -hmm. We call them phages, but you have many, many viruses sitting in the gut as well. Mm -hmm. These microorganisms are influenced by by the the nerve signal coming in from the vagus nerve. And of course, the vagus nerve activity is affected by your level of stress. So if you are chronically stressed, your seesaw tips and in favor of sympathetic activity, which means your parasympathetic or vagal activity activity, is slightly less. Mm -hmm. And that tipping changes the composition, the numbers, the populations, the varieties of the various microorganisms that are sitting in the gut. Mm -hmm. And I must point out that this, this happens when you tip it for a long time. So a short, sharp, reversible tip doesn't do it. But Keeping chronically stressed. Exactly. Mm. And these microbes in turn are responsible for a great many things. Research shows there is they influence how your gut contracts as it pushes food along. Mm They influence how sealed the walls are of your gut. Mm-hmm. They kind of are responsible for maintaining the mucus. Layer. So, as you, if you imagine your gut lined with bricks, you have sort of a wallpaper mm-hmm. against those bricks, which we call the, mucin, the mucus layer. Mm-hmm. So, the integrity of that wall of the mucus layer, all of those things are influenced by these. Microorganisms that are sitting in the gut, mm-hmm. and your brain through emotion. If you, you know, imagine if you have a bad day at work because of a nasty coworker, that coworker is influencing your physiology all the way down to the bugs that are sitting inside your gut. Yes,
0: yeah, absolutely, and that's where it talks a lot about intestinal permeability. And I know that there's a term that's used quite a lot now: um, leaky gut syndrome as well. And I guess this is where it all starts to manifest. And there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But there's one topic I just want to ask you before we before we wrap up. And it's about stress and relationships. Because this I think is something that's really fascinating. And I'd love to know whether men and women process stress differently, because I had read that women seem to release more oxytocin, which is the feel good makes you when you cuddle someone you release that oxytocin hormone and men produce less and i wanted to know if that was true and if that is true when we're stressed then um that must have a massive impact on how we view our relationships and how we react in those situations
1: i think i i i I read the study you're referring to Mm. that when uh when one study has shown that when um, that there is a gender difference between male and females, and females tend to reach out more than, than mm, males yes. during acute during stress. Um, so the gender difference is slightly nuanced because we have to, it's sometimes very difficult to extricate the role of gender from the role of gender role. Okay, so for mm-hmm. instance, um, there are certain ways in which m- males react because of, you know, gender stereotypes. And there's also separate to that, there is also the actual biological uh, mechanisms of the stress reaction. So let's talk about the biological mechanisms of the stress reaction. So several studies have shown that there seems to be a difference between the way males and females react to stress in terms of their brain. Okay, so again, these are just, so if you just take, these studies have really just taken, you know, healthy males and females and examined, looked at their brains while they're going through a stressful reaction. And we find that in in males, um, certain parts of the brain in the anterior region, I talked about the prefrontal cortex, so the bit of the brain behind the forehead, that seems to be more active during stress Mm. in males than in females. And in females, an area called the limbic circuit, so that, invo- that includes the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that's re- that becomes very active when you're processing emotion. Mm. This part of the brain seems to be more active in females when they go through stress. Wow. So there is definitely there seems to definitely be some kind of a gender difference at the level of brain circuitry between males and females. But again, I must add um, the, the detail that with many of these studies, it's sometimes very difficult to remove gender role from actual uh, gender differences.
0: Yes, that's a brilliant point to make, so, but so interesting at the same time. So interesting. Um, and lastly, I'd love to ask you what does live well, be well mean to you? How do you live well? You know, as, as being a stress expert, I feel like so many people want to know the answer to that question.
1: So I think I try to, <laughs> talking about living well. So my mental concept of living well would be keeping my seesaw straight. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So the way I try to start my day is by doing an activity in the morning. I exercise or I meditate or I do yoga or sometimes all three if I have time to create a mental state where I feel very balanced. So I feel very focused first thing in the morning. And I think for me or for everyone, Life is constantly throwing all sorts of things at us, mm. as we've just seen with this great pandemic. Living well, for me, really means resilience, which means that you are able to come back, to tip your seesaw back into being completely straight, no matter how fast, or how much, or how often it is tipped in one direction. Mm. And in order to do that, you need to, In order to be well, um, you have to live well. And living well in that sense means making a series of very small adjustments to your day, but doing little things every day, but doing them every day. And that really allows your, your brain to achieve a state where little knocks and bouts, sudden surprises, they cause a stress reaction, but you're able to immediately bounce back.
0: I think that's fantastic. Mental resilience can get you through any stressful situation. I think that's brilliant. And I'd love to also know what would be your top foods to recommend regarding stress?
1: So I'd I'd start off by saying, um, what's your caffeine? Mm-hmm.
0: I always so, say that
1: to my clients. I'm so pleased that you said the same. I'm so happy you say that. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 very hard today mm-hmm. to. I mean, now with the lockdown, it's different. Or with the pandemic, it's different. But you know, pre-pandemic, it was very hard to walk along any street and not be tempted by a caffeine injection. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that now with the with the nuance that for some some people um, seem to be who develop a caffeine tolerance can tolerate small amounts of caffeine, but caffeine in in general, it is a stimulant. Mm. And one of the simplest ways in which I've personally found um, my stress levels calming down, but also one of the simplest ways in which you can actually re, you know, return to a kind of a calmer state, peaceful state, is by having a really great night of sleep. Good, deep, peaceful sleep. And drinking caffeine any time in the afternoon or the evening, depending on how much you drink, of course, influences the state of your sleep.
2: Mm.
1: And I'd say that would be the single most important reason to, if possible, avoid caffeine. Mm -hmm. But if you absolutely can't, to try to stick to caffeine only in the morning and at very, very low levels. Thank you
0: so much. That was just unbelievably interesting unbelievably interesting and can you let them know where we can find more of your social media
1: channels and your website certainly so thank you so much for for having me it was a real pleasure um so if you want to know more so i'm probably i'd say most active on twitter so i post, I tweet studies that I come across. Mm-hmm. My Twitter handle is at Steroni Me My website is www.MeTooSteroni.com, where there are links to my book as well, and a little bit about me. And I also have a page on Facebook. Uh, again, just my name, Dr. Me Steroni, and also on Instagram, Dr. Me Steroni.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Me I wish you a lovely rest of your day.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thank
0: you for listening. If you enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe as you'll love next week's episode. And if you did enjoy it, please do leave a five-star rating because it helps spread the awareness of the podcast, the information that's given. But it also shows me that you're enjoying it too, which is the most important. But lastly, if you haven't yet signed up to The Great British Veg Out, I've created a free 30 day challenge ebook with 30 recipes, nutritional information, shopping lists. You've got the whole shebang in there, guys. And it can help really improve your house, getting you in the kitchen and looking at food in a different way. So you can sign up for free via my website, or you can check out my Instagram or the BeWork Instagram. But until next week, I hope you all live well and be well.